So to catch you up, if you weren't here last week, I had moved to California the summer between my junior and senior year to do my pastoral internship at a large church in Sacramento. And within the first week, I should importantly add that uh, I had conveniently chosen this church because this happened to be where the girl I had been pursuing my whole junior year, where she went to church, and I thought there might be a chance that her and I would begin dating. So I moved to California with that hope in mind and also wanting to be a part of this really phenomenal ministry in Sacramento. But things shifted dramatically for me within the first week when I saw this unbelievably gorgeous girl who worked for the school and was a youth leader in the youth ministry. And my heart told me something that was implausible, I would even say impossible, that I immediately knew that I would marry her. Now, it uh, wasn't looking good as I had just begun dating this girl I had been pursuing, and this girl that I was convinced I was going to marry had a boyfriend already, and I would only be there at the church for about three months, then I would move back to Missouri to finish my degree. But as the summer progressed along, things began to move in the right direction. I started having different feelings for the girl that I was convinced that I wanted to be with. I was less and less interested in being with her and more and more interested in being with Lisa. And so I would find any excuse I could to talk to her and be around her. And even though she had a boyfriend, it seemed that she wanted to be with me as well. And so she didn't rebuff any of my flirtations. She didn't stop me from talking. She giggled a lot and smiled a lot and seemed to be having a good time as well. Then the clouds parted, the sun shone down on us, the angels sang and all things were aligned, my girlfriend went with her friend to Washington on vacation, and Lisa's boyfriend went to Kansas with his family on vacation. And her and I would be counselors at the same junior high camp that the church was putting on all week long together. (laughs) This was the favor of the Lord. Amen. (laughs) And we were inseparable. We spent every minute we could. As a matter of fact, one of the youth pastors I was working for got angry, separated us, put us on two different teams so we couldn't spend time together. So like obedient servants, we would sneak off and leave the kids unsupervised. And we would go find a room and just talk and laugh and be together. And then it came to a screeching halt. I had to go back to school without her. Now, you have to remember we didn't have the benefit of even emails or texts, cell phones, anything like that. We had to write things down on paper, our thoughts, our feelings, our words, and then put those in envelopes and put a stamp on there. And then a postal delivery person would take that all the way to the other state for us. We would send each other cards and gifts, but... It wasn't too long before the pressure of being so far apart 
of having this thing that was so amazing while we were together was so unbelievably difficult while we were apart, it became harder and harder for us to maintain this relationship to to continue in what felt like it was supposed to happen. Then a conversation happened in which Lisa told me, I don't think we should talk as much anymore. I felt like we weren't talking enough, and here she was telling me that she didn't think we should talk as much anymore, and we needed to cool down a relationship that I already felt was not any warmer than room temperature (laughs) because she was convinced that I would not be coming back to California, and why invest in a relationship that's just not going to go anywhere? And so we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But I want to shift gears back to a conversation that Jesus had to have with his disciples when a man came and begged Jesus to deliver his son from an impossible thing, this thing that his son had been tormented by, this demonic force that was clearly stronger than his faith, clearly stronger than even the disciples' faith, because the man ratted out the disciples and said, I brought him already to your disciples, but they could do nothing for him. And so Jesus turns, delivers the boy of this demonic presence. The boy's instantly healed, and the disciples ask this question, trying to soothe their humiliation, their embarrassment, their befuddlement on why they couldn't do what Jesus did without seemingly any effort at all. And here was his answer in Matthew 17, 20. He says, you don't have enough faith. The answer to your question is you don't have enough faith. I tell you this truth, if you had faith, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, clearly they were on a mountain or near a mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. I wonder how many of us have spoken to that mountain a marriage that's in shattered pieces and spoken to that marriage believing that with faith they could restore that marriage to something whole and good again. I wonder how many people have spoken to a financial crisis or an emotional crisis or a family crisis, circumstances that felt impossible, and put their faith into the belief that that could be made whole again, only to find that nothing happened. I wonder how many mountains we've all told to move from one place to the other, but they just sat still and never went anywhere. I don't know that any of those circumstances that I just described happened because you and I or people we know didn't have enough faith to say something, to take on the mountain. But when that mountain didn't move, in that instance, in that moment, their faith began to evaporate. It got choked out by doubt. It dried up because of its shallow roots. You see, because I think when we look at that passage and we hear Jesus describe what it looks like 
to say to a mountain, move from here to there, we have an imagination of how that's supposed to happen, maybe even how quickly that's supposed to happen. We never consider into faith that there is waiting. We imagine, say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it just begins to slide. We don't see if Jared or someone could turn up, I think the smoke machine is uh, making a growling behind me, which um, I have not taken enough Adderall for that not to distract me this morning. (laughs) The idea that a mountain wouldn't take time to move, that an impossible thing would be done immediately, it doesn't seem to factor into our thinking about faith. So when God doesn't respond in our timing, we begin to get frustrated Here's the thing, Jesus says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, interesting that he chose the seed, the unplanted potential of something happening. He didn't say, if you had the faith of a fully grown mustard plant, he said a seed, something that has to be invested, cared for, watered, fertilized, exposed to health and sun, given time to grow, and then it manifests its growth and fruit. It's about the waiting. It's almost as if faith is inherently about waiting. Maybe the waiting is where you and I take on some of the things that challenge our faith, that dilute our faith, that rob us of our faith, that scorch our faith, that choke out our faith. Maybe the waiting is really the journey that builds our faith. We might have enough to say to the mountain, move from here to there, but the moment it doesn't do what we said, then we begin to doubt. And maybe Jesus is saying, what about a faith that continues to grow during the waiting, not diminish during the waiting? So grab your notes. If the mountain isn't moving yet, it means that I need to number one, be careful not to confuse not now with not ever. If the mountain isn't moving yet, I have to be careful not to confuse not now with not ever. So I went back to school and Lisa and I were talking on the phone as much as we could afford to. Remember, long distance cost money then, and you buy long distance calling cards because you thought you were getting some sort of discount. We wrote each other and we sent each other gifts, but when she hit me with that news that we should cool it and not talk as much, I will tell you I did not handle that news well. It felt like rejection. I was crushed. I was disappointed. I was even angry, and I began to believe that if this wasn't going to happen now, that maybe it was never meant to happen at all. Maybe I was wrong when I heard those words inside of me that you're going to marry this girl. I clearly was wrong because this was going disastrously the other direction. This was not headed towards marriage. So what I did was... I continued to talk to Lisa occasionally, but I also started talking to my former girlfriend. And those conversations quickly moved towards marriage. She wanted to get married. 
Lisa didn't. Lisa didn't even want to talk on the phone. And so that helped soothe a wounded ego. And that wasn't enough, though. It was my senior year, and I thought, I'm going to date as many people as I can squeeze into a week in between classes and work and work on this potential marriage I think I've got going on and maybe even work on the fragmented remains of this thing with Lisa. You see, I wanted a dream to happen if the dream wouldn't happen. I started talking to mountains because the one I first spoke to wasn't moving anywhere, so I thought, move on to the mountains that might. The dream was slipping away from me and I wasn't going to let it happen. If it wasn't gonna happen now, then I would find one that would happen, at least in my timing. Lamentations 3.25 says this, the Lord is wonderfully good to those who wait for him, comma, to those who seek for him. Now, leave that there for just a second, if you will. I find it interesting because I looked at this in many, many different translations, and here's what I found. It's as if this is not meant to communicate two separate thoughts to those who wait for him, and to those who seek him, like those are two different things, and joins those together, but the comma is a continuation of that thought. It's as if the waiting is, is so similar to the seeking that they can't be, uh, uh, they, they're not distinguishable from each other. It's as if those two are interchangeable, that waiting and seeking are the same thing. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. He says, just ask and it'll be given to you. Seek, which is an active, right? It's a pursuit. It's a timed thing. It's not instantaneous. Seek after it and you will find it. Continue to knock and the door will be open for you. Those who ask, receive. Listen, those who seek, find what they seek, and the one who knocks will have the door opened. It's as if Jesus is saying there's a process to getting it. Have, have you ever um, been locked out and you know your spouse is inside? Um, Lisa has this, it's a fun, it's a fun thing. It's fun. I have a I have a blast when she does it. When I go outside into the backyard and I'm throwing trash away or something, and she comes almost immediately behind me and locks the sliding glass door. It's, it's such a fun game we play because my part of the game is knocking so hard on that glass that I bring it to the brink of breaking. The... I'm out here still, and you've locked me out. And I won't stop knocking until someone drops what they're doing and comes to let me back inside the house. Jesus says that tenacity is rewarded. Jesus says that going after something, that you have faith will happen. 
that not giving up when it doesn't happen in an instant. He said something very similar in Matthew 6, 33, when he says, but first and foremost, and Pastor Jared just said this, first and for, and most importantly, seek, which means to aim at or strive after. Not just look for, but aim at and strive after. His kingdom and his righteousness, his priorities and his nature, his way of doing and being right, the attitude and character of God. Because listen, I'll tell you this, that if you have faith that something, that God's going to do something for you, but you refuse to act in the character of God, to have the attitude of God, to have the likeness of God, do you think that God will reward you for acting in the flesh instead of acting in His Spirit? And the answer is, of course, no. That's why waiting is so important, so that God can draw us closer to His character, to the right way of thinking, to the right way of doing things. When I hear people, and they want to save this world from all the evil, but they are acting worse than the world to accomplish that task, I think God will never give you what you're asking for. God will never deliver you from any of this thing when you're acting worse than those that you're trying to save yourself from. Side note, that's free. You don't have to pay any extra for that. <laughs> and all these things will be given to you also. And what are all these things? Those were things that people worry about. It was provision. It was health. It was clothing. It was housing. It was food. It was finances. It was material provision. Jesus was speaking to the things that you and I struggle with the most and the things that we try to apply our faith to the most, the things we try to speak to the most. Jesus said, seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Go on a journey of waiting to be more like him and then then he will give these things to you. Secondly is this. If the mountain isn't moving yet, it means that I need to trust that what I see is not what's really happening. Trust that what I see is not what's really happening. So there's a widely held and dangerously untrue belief that seeing is believing. Everybody's heard that expression before. Seeing is believing. In other words, if we can't witness it, and see it with our own eyes, then it probably isn't true. If it can't be validated or verified by an eyewitness account, then it can't be true. Conversely, if we do see it, then we can assume that it's true. We can believe that it's true. The problem is our eyes lie to us all the time. Maybe more accurately, our brain lies to us about what our eyes see. It distorts and twists and misremembers and sometimes downright lies to us about what we see every day. And it's true of really unimportant things. We see something and we misremember it or it's distorted in our memory, something we witness with our eyes. It happens all the time with very unimportant things appointments that you have or things that you thought you saw on a newscast or something you remember uh, seeing happen at a store. And then it especially happens, more so happens with really important big things in our life. Here, I'm going to give you an example. Um, several years ago, many, many years ago, actually, Lisa and I lived about 30 minutes from here um, in Foothill Farms area, and we were on staff in Fair Oaks. And I was... Uh, going to the church office, and from, I believe it's Auburn Boulevard, I was getting ready to turn right on uh, Greenback, I think, 
and uh, I don't remember anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, there was only th- uh, three lanes. There was the furthest left lane, which was oncoming traffic, right? This was a, um, uh, you could only turn right or left, you couldn't go straight. And so the, you had the, the, the lane for oncoming traffic, then you had the f- next left lane, and that was a left turn lane, and then you had the next lane, which I was in, and that was the right turn lane, because that's where I needed to go. Um, I collided with a car to my right, and it wasn't my fault. But to the eyewitness that gave the report to the police, I actually completely understand how they believed that it was. Here's what they told the police. They said that I was in the left turn lane, and when the light turned green, Instead of turning left, I turned right. It must have looked that way because what happened was I was sitting in the right-hand turn lane. I could have turned left on red, as is permissible after you've come to a full and complete stop, right? But I sat there a little too long because I was thinking, should I go there first or should I go home first? And so I sat longer than the person behind me thought I should have. So impatiently, they pulled into the very narrow bike lane to my right, and when the light then turned green, we both turned right together, and I ran into them. To the person a block away witnessing this, it looked as if they were in the right lane, I was in the left lane, I was in the wrong. Their accounting, their eyewitness testimony was completely un. True, but they had seen it with their own eyes. I'm sure from their vantage point, they would testify in court to what they saw. Swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help them God. The problem is eyewitness accounts are almost always inaccurate. The Innocence Project, which is an organization probably you've heard of, that helps exonerate wrongfully convicted people using DNA They have approximated that 75% of overturned convictions that involve DNA liberating the guilty party involve some sort of erroneous eyewitness testimony. Every three out of four cases where someone was wrongfully convicted, they were wrongfully convicted in part because of somebody's incorrect eyewitness statement. The truth is that our eyes are terrible recorders of reality. Studies show that we constantly are seeing things that are later distorted in our minds by emotions, personal biases, post-event happening, things that happened afterwards that affect how we remember what happened at the event. In other words, we commingle those things together. And even the kind of questions people will ask us in telling us to recount what we saw, can influence our memory of how we saw them. We have a limited scope of sight. I'm seeing all you from this vantage point in the room. I'm not seeing the backs of your heads. I'm not seeing you from the side. I'm not seeing you from above. I've only got one perspective. And so you witnessing something from the back corner or the back in the middle is going to be different than my vantage point, elevated above seeing all of you from the front. Research shows that people are even highly convinced, confident, 
that what they saw was absolutely true, even though later they're confronted with the reality that what they swear they saw never actually happened or happened completely different than they remembered it. You know that even your race affects how you can recall what you've seen? Researchers have identified a phenomenon that happens almost all the time when there is a person of one race trying to identify somebody of another race. It's called cross-race effect or same-race bias. In other words, if you're African-American, you have a hard time recalling and identifying somebody who's white and vice versa, an Asian and any other ethnicity other than our own. The point is, you and I, I'm sure you're on the same page with me, can't believe what we see with our eyes. The overwhelming problem and impossible circumstance that we believe we're seeing exactly as it is. We think the problem that we see before us, we know everything we need to know about it. We don't only need to know or, or know what, what, what's actually happening. We have the foresight to know what's going to happen in the future. We know that this mountain has not moved, this mountain is not moving, and we know with certainty this mountain will not move. I've had people sit in my office. As one spouse said, I want to go to counseling. I want to make this work. And the other spouse says, nothing's going to change. This is not going to work. We've tried it before. I don't want to try it anymore because it's just not going to work. It's amazing that you and I are so arrogant as to believe we actually can tell the future by what we see in front of us right now. We should be especially interested, though, in Hebrews 11.1 1, when it says this, faith is the assurance, the certainty of things that you've hoped for and the absolute conviction that there are realities you've never seen. In other words, this is a truth that says we should be believing that which we have not seen more than that which we have seen. And I've just given you a bunch of information why that should make a lot of sense to us. The things you see are 100% lying to you. Your brain is lying to you. Your emotions are lying to you. What you absolutely know with certainty is fact, I can tell you, is probably not. And what you don't know about, I can assure you, is happening and if you believe and place your faith in a God that says he's working all things to the good of those who believe in him, then I can tell you there's a lot happening that you don't see. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says it like this, the path we walk is charted by faith, not what we see with our eyes. Can I tell you that flying somewhere and walking somewhere, flying sounds more attractive. We're going in August to see my parents, my brother in St. Louis, and uh, we're flying as a family, and I chose that over walking um, because I know it takes about three days to drive it. Um, I don't know. I've, I did not go to AAA's website and find out, can you make up some triptychs and tell me how long it would take for us to walk this? Because that sounds like a miserable journey, but do you realize that walking gives you both time and perspective that flying doesn't because flying 
lifts you up and takes you over circumstances and experiences and encounters and moments that I believe with certainty God wants us to be a part of, wants us to be bumping up against, wants us to be encountering and experiencing and changing and developing and growing. Third and finally is this, that if the mountain isn't moving yet, it means that I need to avoid the temptation of using my own mountain-moving methods. The three M's, the three M's of mountain-moving methods. I took a class in college called mountain-moving, I'm just kidding. Um, So over the years, uh, with different members on the team, uh, Pastor Dan, will you make a mental note that whatever we have the thermostats at now, it's a little too warm. I see this going on, and I feel like I'm going to have some displays of moisture going on under my arms. So over the years, we've taken different um, leadership assessment um, uh, programs and, and books and surveys and things to sort of say what kind of uh, leadership skills and abilities and personality types that we have so that we can better understand each other and we can better interact with conflict and we can better communicate to each other. And almost always, uh, mine sort of go to, you know, some have been, I'm a different, I'm a color, I'm a, I'm a yellow or I'm a gold and other people are blues and they're emotional and right. And then, uh, and then there's other, uh, strengths finder 2.0. And uh, I kind of always come out as a strategic thinker and an influencer communicator, right? And uh, if you don't know what strategic thinkers are, um, we're the kind of people that when creative thinkers are dreaming out loud, we're crapping on that in real time. That's what, <laughs> that's what strategic thinkers do. Um, while, <laughs> while, they're, while they're talking about what they can imagine happening. You know, like, uh, they'd be like, and what if we could um, get a company to like donate limos and we'll go around and we'll pick up widows and orphans and homeless people and disabled vets and then we'll take them to an animal shelter right before the animals are about to get killed and they can pick out their own service animal and then we'll pay to get the animals trained so that they can do devotions in the Bible every day with their service animal. That would be a good ministry and I'm the one at the end of the table shaking my head, writing down the 2,300 reasons, that's just a terrible idea. But I'll say, well, that's not going to work, but I will tell you an idea that's way better and will work because my idea is not a plot to a Disney movie. Mine's based in reality because things cost money and nobody's going to get into a limo with strangers and why would you even, right? And in my mind, I'm helping them. I'm helping tell you your idea's dumb. See, I helped you. Now you don't go around dreaming up dumb things. You listen to people like me. Mine are all smart ideas, right? So here's the deal. The world needs strategic thinkers like me. But, but I would be the disciple Jesus would have to frequently pull aside and remind me, listen, that some of the most important transformational things that will happen in anybody's life will not happen as the result of good planning, of strategy, of logic, of reason. 
of calculation. He'll remind me that impossible things only happen, only become possible because of something that transcends our ability to plan it out. That it happens because we return to a place that Jesus admired. He admonished and scolded his own disciples for not having this. He said, the faith of children is what the kingdom of God is all about. Their innocence, their ability to believe in impossible things, to believe in magical things, to believe in unseen things, to believe in things that as adults we've grown out of believing. He says, go back to that because that's where impossible things happen. Proverbs 19.21 says this, we humans keep brainstorming options and plans, but it's God's purpose that prevails. So if we're going to pick a path, would we rather think on the things of God? Think on the ways of God. Think on the heart of God. Think on the actions of God rather than returning to human wisdom over and over. I'm not advocating stupidity. I'm not advocating carelessness. The Bible also talks about zeal without wisdom. But what if we begin the journey believing that, of course, mountains move? It takes time to move mountains, and the bigger they are, likely the longer it might take. But the most impossible things to us are possible for God. And it's you and I that claim to be believers and faithful followers of Him. How many impossible things? Now, listen, before you pat yourself on the back and go, thank God, I'm not PC. I don't think like that. I don't step on people's dreams. I would challenge you that you do. You step on your own time and time again. How many possible things, impossible things remained impossible because you chose to worry instead of to dream? That you chose to doubt over to increase faith. And you chose to listen to the voice of fear rather than call out to hear the voice of God in your life. I'll close with this. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. And let petitions and praises Shape your worries. In other words, let what you ask of God and let what you thank God for shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Hold it right there. I love this. It doesn't ignore the reality of worry. It doesn't re ignore the reality of fear. It simply says, use that as the foundation that motivates you to transform and transcend those things and move them into something that actually produces in our lives. There's an estimation in psychology that 85 to 90% of the things that we worry about never actually ever happen. And they say that that worry can actually impact our physical health. We release negative hormones. We actually gain weight because of worry and stress. We are killing ourselves with heart disease because of our worry, our anxiety, and stress. 
And this says, let those things motivate you. Turn them into prayers. That which you're worrying about, pray about instead. Thank God in advance for instead. You can go on. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I love the idea that there's going to be a point in that journey of the waiting on God to do what God's going to do, on the waiting for our faith to catch up with the dreams that God has given us. I love the idea that if we're doing that, if we're moving our worries into prayers and we're praying for the things that stress us out and we're trusting God in advance that he will turn all of this for our good, that there's a moment in which all of that worry and stress and anxiety is simply forced out of our lives. Take a bucket, a five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, and then begin to push things inside of there and watch one of those things has to yield, one of those things has to give up, and the water will begin to displace and push itself out, and eventually all that you put in there in its place will be there instead of the water. And that's exactly what peace does when God begins to move that into our life. Every time we pray, every time we believe, every time we thank Him in advance for what He's going to do for us, the dream coming true. I said this last week, In about a week, we'll celebrate 30 years of the dream coming true that I thought I had lost. I believed without a shadow of a doubt that we didn't stand a chance of keeping that relationship together. You might not think that's a miraculous thing, but I want to tell you that at that time in my life, I cared about nothing else. I wanted that more than anything in my life, and I believed without a shadow of a doubt that God had given me that dream. And yet I was quick to give it up. The moment I faced resistance and reluctance, hesitation on Lisa's part, she didn't realize what a dream I was. She didn't share the confidence that I had. Man, is she thankful today that she... First Peter 5, 7 says this, since God cares for you, Let him carry all your burdens and worries. Man, he loves you. And somebody who loves you as much as God does doesn't want to see you burdened by stress, anxiety, hopelessness, and faithlessness. Let him carry those things for you. When you feel it, run and lay it at his feet as quickly as you can, like it's burning coals in your hands and you can't wait to release it to him. Let him extinguish doubt and faithlessness and worry and anxiety in your life. And let him give you instead the peace that understands in your heart beyond reason, beyond logic, that he is going to do it for you. Because God is a keeper of his promises and God is a mover of mountains. But you and I have to be lovers of waiting because waiting and faith go hand in hand. Your faith grows because of the wait. Your faith increases because of the wait. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second? There's nothing magical, nothing spiritual, nothing right about closing your eyes and bowing your heads. It's practical. It just gives you a moment to be alone with what God's been whispering in your heart for the last half hour. And you just say, 
there are things that I'm facing that feel impossible. And I've spoken to them in faith, and my faith has been discouraged, defeated, deflated because of the weight. Because it feels like God's not listening, and it feels like the mountain's not moving. But I trust that God is doing what I cannot see. I trust that I have to move forward in faith and not according to what's right in front of me. I have to trust God more than I trust myself. I've heard God's voice challenge me this morning, and I want to say yes. I want to say I'm going to begin to trust him. I'm going to begin to move. I'm going to begin to walk that journey. I don't care how long it takes. I want to walk in faith because I know the destination is when I arrive, it's a moved mountain. The mountain, I don't have to witness it in order for it to be true. It can be moved without me seeing it, without my approval, without my strategies, without my help, without my input, God can do the impossible. All I have to do is walk the path of faith in front of me, and that's what I want to do. If that's you, just shoot a hand up and say, yeah, that's where I'm, I'm at right now. Thank you, God, for those who are in the middle of their impossible thing that they even have the faith to be here this morning because sometimes it's easy to get mad at you, wondering if you haven't forgotten us or ignored us or are mad at us, wondering if the impossible thing is just because you don't care enough about the thing we care so much about. And so working up even the energy, the confidence or faith to sit down in a room like this and worship and sing and listen to a message is exhausting, but I believe without any doubt whatsoever that the seed that got planted today, it can grow into insurmountable faith, the kind of faith that can speak to impossible things and believe that it's going to happen. Walk away from that mountain with the same confidence as if they just spoke it and witnessed it themselves, but they can just God, in their mind and in their heart, in the eye of their faith, they already see it happening. They just say, God, I'm going to continue on this journey of faith. Call me when it's time to watch the mountain move. Or call me when it's time to come back and see the result of you moving the mountain on my behalf. But I refuse in Jesus' name to stress any longer. I refuse in Jesus' name to worry any longer. I refuse in Jesus' name to carry anxiety and hopelessness any longer. Every time it's put on my shoulders, I'm going to run as fast as I can to a moment of prayer and dump it at your feet and say, I'd like some peace instead, please. And walk out clothed, robed in confidence, faith, and peace. And that's our prayer for everyone who raised their hand and everyone who's getting ready to go into an impossible moment. We claim it, we receive it, and we thank you for it now as if it's already happened in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.